Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Nothing says a good time like sunshine on your face, a cold drink in your hand, and the magical smell of charcoal, wood, and smoke. That's right, barbecue. This week, we're going to explore cooking things low and slow. Barbecue is more than just a food. It's a culture, and in some cases, the basis for entire societies. And in our SAS class, we're going to get a few tips on how to stay safe when you're cooking outside the kitchen. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to cook up some tasty mental treats. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. The barbecue is an integral part of summertime, and in many places around the world, it is the culture. And our first guest should know... He's a grill master who knows that the kitchen is where you make it. He's Matt Basile, and you might know him as Fidel Gastros on social media. He has shared his vision on television with his show, Rebel Without a Kitchen, and on popular YouTube channels with his series, Chefs in Cars Getting Takeout, Date Night with Grandma, Ya Brunch, that's four A's for the record, and much more. He's also written two cookbooks, and knows a thing or two about barbecue. What is it about the barbecue lifestyle that makes it so popular? I think people are always enamored by cooking food over open flame at some point. I think there's a, a perceived notion that it will always taste better if you, if you cook over fire. But what's interesting is because like you spelled barbecue, B-A-R-B-E-C-U-E, which is actually more like traditional competition barbecue in the U.S. where you're using wood to smoke meat. I think it often gets confused with, you know, grilling or BBQ, which is also barbecue, but a very different kind of process. Not so much about like the low and slow, which is what barbecue meat is actually all about, and more about kind of just grilling things, again, over open flame on, on a grill. There's a lot of similarity between you, but like traditional barbecue is like using uh, low and sm- slow techniques and, and using wood uh, to kind of create smoke. I am a lover of using smoke. I have all sorts of different wood chips at home. And for me, it's an ingredient. When I'm putting something on that barbecue, I am making sure that I am infusing a flavor that is coming from the heat itself. So do you think that barbecuing and grilling sort of combined opens up a realm of possibilities that indoor kitchens just can't really provide. I think one thing it definitely does is anyone can do it in that respect. Like I've even built pseudo barbecues out of a cast iron uh, grate that I found and I made like a little fire pit and I was able to kind of prop up the grate and we (laughs) used it to make a little makeshift barbecue. And that's what makes it so I guess, globally acceptable as far as like when it comes to making food. I think when you get into a a kitchen environment, you're now away from the elements as far as like natural elements, which is like, you know, smoke, fire, all those things. 
uh, oxygen, which is very needed for barbecue. You know, you're dealing with high-end pots and pans and really fancy burners and stovetops and any other gadget you can think of. I think you're not necessarily complicating the process of, of cooking, but nothing, in my opinion, is more simple than, than barbecue or grilling. And I love that you bring up the international perspective because, at least for me, I find that in North America, the tendency is to think of barbecuing as a pastime. But in many cultures, it is a part of life. You've traveled quite a bit. What have you seen mm-hmm. in your travels? It depends what, what part of the world you're in. I, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asian night markets where it's very normal to just see kind of a little makeshift charcoal grill and... There's a, a constant replenishment of seafood and and meat going on very quickly, and it's going r- literally from from grill to, to people's hands to people's mouths. It's very uh, fast, and you can walk by and kind of taste a, a plethora of food very quickly because of it. And then if you look at other parts of the world, Brazilian and Argentinian asado is essentially cooking meat suspended over open fire and then taking like things like root vegetables and burying them in the, in the fire, and kind of slow cooking the, the vegetables that way. So you're really just kind of using the elements. Again, when I say elements, I mean like the natural elements to showcase what it is you're cooking. I think when you come inside and you go to a kitchen to start cooking, it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. It's a lot more refined. You're now leaning on gadgets to help get you to your end goal. What's the deal with hibachis? I had them when I was a kid. My, my dad would use right. them all the time, but I, I can't yeah. get into it. I just, I can't do it. I don't understand. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's as an Italian, it wasn't about hibachis. It was, they were actually like little spaducci grills. I don't know. That's oh yeah. Where you would take like little skewered pieces of lamb or skewered pieces of beef and they're like really thin barbecues and you would really only ever cook a they're almost built just for spaducis. Like, it's kind of funny like that. There's a lot of different cultural cuisines that have that version of a hibachi-style grill. There's a great Netflix documentary called Barbecue, and there's uh, they look at Swedish barbecue, and a lot of, like, um, guys, like, mainly men, but, like, men and women in their early 20s, like, you know, I think they're kind of packaging as, like, university students, would essentially, like, bring these little briefcase-style, like, barbecues and just grill sausages wherever they were, you know what I mean? Like it was just kind of a, a social gathering. Tell us a little bit about Fidel Gastro's and what you're doing to change culinary culture. First off, Fidel Gastro's is a company I started about eight years ago. Uh, we changed the culture immediately because of our kind of roots and origins. Then we started operating Fidel Gastro's as a kind of a pop-up in the city, and I would just bring food in a mobile sense on tables, and I would kind of cook food off of tables, and I had a little flat top grill and I would do everything from like different kinds of meats and stuff. And from there, we just started to grow. We had a food truck afterwards, um, a restaurant after that. Uh, now I'm a published cookbook author. I've, I had two seasons of my own show on the travel channel. It's funny how you can just take an idea, look at it a little bit differently. And all of a sudden uh, a business can kind of come out of it. What's your favorite wood? Ooh, I actually like, so are we talking in general or are we talking like, are we talking like for saunas or for smoking? <laughs> we're not, we're not like talking that. about your favorite color here. We're talking about what is yeah. your favorite wood for smoking barbecue. <laughs> yeah. so, I, like to, I like to combine two woods always. I'm always trying to combine a nut wood and a fruit wood. Yep. So um, some really nice 
like pecan and cherry is a really nice uh, combination. Love it. Um, or peach and walnut is a really nice combination or apple. They're, they're, the fruit woods tend to be a little softer, so they burn a little smoother. The nut woods tend to be a little naturally smokier, mm-hmm. so you don't need as much of it. But the, I find the two in combination tend to work very well. I always stay away from the mesquites and the hickories, and I find those too bitter. Uh, a little too intense, which is funny because that's actually what people tend. There's something about those words that people have seen in on barbecue sauces somewhere, and like, ooh, mesquite wood. That's what I want. Like, that's what it's like. No, it's actually quite better if you over smoke. And, and like, over smoking is always a real possibility. If you add too much smoke too quickly, your meat can dry it out. It can make it super bitter. There's more science actually to barbecuing than there is culinary prowess. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's more. It's just as much about the the process of of getting the barbecue right as it is about the flavor profile. There's a ton of room for experimentation, just knowing full well that if, you, if you're going down that road, you might end up making food that you don't like. If, uh, brisket is a, is a perfect example of um, something that can be done exquisitely or if ruined, can be borderline inedible. So I think you just <laughs> need to always know that if you're, if you're going, if you know, it's quite a commitment barbecue because, you know, like that whole low and slow kind of um, process. And usually or more traditionally, meats that are picked for barbecuing tend to be a lot uh, tougher qualities of meat. And they don't actually soften until they've had the time to soften and the proteins have been kind of broken down a, bit, a, a little bit better. I have one last question that actually comes from a listener. And that is, what about the cedar plank? Is that really something that's useful or is it really just a fad? Uh, no, I mean, it, like anything, it's uh, actually, so before I even get into the cedar plank, I actually prefer Himalayan salt bricks. Usually cedar plank is used for seafood. You always have to soak the wood. Like that's the biggest thing. For example, like you might go to the store and see the fish already kind of strapped to the wood and then mm-hmm. they just put that right on. And then, you know, unless the wood's been pre-soaked, it's going to go up in flames um, pretty quickly. The other thing, too, is indirect heat is a much better way to kind of utilize the wood because that way you're getting a slow burn out of it versus a fast burn. Wood burns much faster than the actual meat that you're cooking or the protein you're cooking. So I would highly suggest using it on on an indirect heat. But does cedar work? Well, think about every time you've ever walked into a sauna and said, wow, it smells so good. So think about you're basically cooking something, you know, on that same material. So it's, yeah, it gets infused into the meat and it does a great job. I, I find it works the best for things like trout uh, and salmon. You know, scallops you can do on them. Other fish that kind of retain that, that flavor and that heat. The best thing about fish, cooking fish on cedar planks is they don't take as long. So therefore, you're less likely to burn it up in flames. But I, I'm a really big fan of uh, using the Himalayan salt bricks because they actually give off quite a, an interesting flavor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Most of us have barbecued in the backyard, a park, maybe while camping. Wherever you do it, there's something natural about cooking over a fire. It's intrinsic to our species. Around the world, there are pockets where that primitive way of cooking is more than a means of food preparation. 
It's a culture. It's a society. Getting together for a barbecue allows traditions to be passed down through generations. Gathering for a barbecue meal means stories are being shared during the long hours of cooking food low and slow. Barbecue is more than just a word, it is a way of life. The southern United States is one of those places. Being a southerner is not just about living below the 39th parallel. It's a mindset in and of itself. And here's where it gets awesome. There are numerous subcultures that exist, and you can identify them in many ways. But there is one key distinction. Each one has a different way of barbecue. And you better believe you'll be able to taste the difference from Texas to South Carolina to Kansas City and so many more places. Our next guest has spent more than 50 years studying the South and has explored how barbecue is a stamp of culture and identity. His name is John Shelton Reed, and since getting his doctorate at Columbia University in 1969, he has proven to be one of the most prolific scholars of the South. He's written 22 books, been a fellow of the National Humanities Center, and has shared his knowledge at hundreds of institutions all over the world. It's no stretch to say you have one of the most extensive understandings of the American South. You have been so prolific in your research, and yet I think to something incredibly poignant you wrote back in 1973. The only strong correlate of Southern identification is geographic residence within the South. With that in mind, what does it mean to be a Southerner? I wrote that because a number of people, including for a long, very long time, have been saying that uh, being a white Southerner was all about uh, supporting segregation and uh, white supremacy. And what that article showed was that there's much stronger correlation with where you live than with what you think. Uh, on, on that issue or any other that I could identify. But uh, what it means to be Southern plainly has changed even since I wrote that article. It used to mean, no question about it, it meant standing up for Dixie and uh, honoring Confederate heroes and uh, meant, among other things, that uh, Southerner meant white Southerner. Uh, blacks, by and large, did not use that word for themselves. There were exceptions, like Booker T. Washington, but he was making a point. Since then, it's changed. That's not what it's about anymore. There still are folks with uh, lingering nostalgia for the Confederacy, but they're a minority of white Southerners and uh, never did appeal much to black ones. So uh, what does it mean uh, if it doesn't mean that? I think increasingly what it means uh, is a sort of shared style in the present rather than a shared historical experience. You ask, ask people the question, and they talk about speech and food and humor and uh, uh, sometimes religion and music, shared tastes that uh, sort of identify you as a Southerner and that you share with, with other Southerners. I live in North Carolina, you know, and when I go to Texas, I feel at home there in a way that I don't feel at home when I go to, say, Ohio. And the reason is I think that I share a lot of assumptions with Texans and a lot of, a lot of tastes. For years, you studied the culture of the South. But more recently, you've added in research that most listeners probably will find more tangible, and that is barbecue. 
What brought about going in that direction? Well, uh, for one thing, I I retired from my university job and, you know, could write about whatever I wanted to, didn't have to worry about uh, impressing my scholarly peers. (laughs) But uh, I had written some about barbecue already. I mean, it's hard to write about the South without mentioning barbecue from time to time. My wife and I, one evening, well, we ate a lot of barbecue. We sometimes went for lunch, you know, 70 miles to Lexington and things like that because we liked it. And it's part of what being a North Carolinian means, or at least used to me. We were sitting one evening with the uh, director of the University of North Carolina Press, and somehow the subject of barbecue came up. And it turned out he and I both knew a book by a fellow named Rob Walsh called Legends of Texas Barbecue. And somebody at the table said someone should do something like this about North Carolina. My wife and I kind of looked at each other and we said, well, we will. And David said, well, get me a proposal then. And we did. turns out we'd already done a lot of the work for the book. I mean, we've been to most of the famous North Carolina barbecue places. My wife had taken pictures of you know, plates of barbecue and the facades and signs of barbecue places. So uh, we, we didn't have as hard a time writing the book as you might suppose. But you write a book about something and... Uh, Incidentally, it's ironic. It's called The Big Book of North Carolina Barbecue. Holy smoke is the title. Big Book of North Carolina Barbecue. <laughs> I'm not a North Carolinian. I'm a Tennessean. I grew up across the line. I've been in North Carolina since 1969, but uh, yeah, I'm still a Tennessean. That's how it works down here. That's the that gives me a certain objectivity. <laughs> there are state disputes between eastern <laughs> North Carolina and western North Carolina about what kind of sauce to use and what parts of the pig to cook. And uh, I could kind of rise and float above that. I could eat whichever I happen to be in the presence of quite happily. But I don't want you to, because quite honestly, up here, one of the things that we like to hear about is the battle between the St. Louis barbecue and the Kansas City barbecue. Now, when you look at a geographic map, they're not that far apart. (laughs) No, they're not. And actually, the truth is they're not that different from one another compared to, say, Texas barbecue or North Carolina barbecue or God knows uh, South Carolina barbecue where they put mustard in the sauce. Uh, barbecue is, for the time being, intensely local. That may be changing. We can talk about that. But I wrote once that uh, you know it's the nearest thing we've got to European wines or cheeses. You drive 100 miles and the barbecue changes. You, know, you, you can tell where you are by what kind of barbecue you're eating. That's a good point. And uh, that's still true to a great extent, even within within a state. I mean, South Carolina has four distinct barbecue regions in that one state. North Carolina has three. So you can tell which part of even, not just which state you're in, but which part of the state you're in. From a purely anthropological perspective, oh, barbecuing is really just a traditional means of cooking performed in a number of regions around the world. When we think of barbecue, though, we immediately think of the South. Is barbecuing really that important to the culture of the South, or is it more of a stereotype now? Well, for starters, you're using it as a verb, you know, to barbecue. That's generally not the way it's discussed in the South. We speak sometimes of a barbecue, which is an event that people go to, and we speak of barbecue, which is something you put on a plate. It's a noun. But to barbecue, we know what you mean, but we don't put it that way. What it means, though, is uh, at least what it has meant and still means in, in the South is cooking for a long time at a low temperature in the presence of uh, wood smoke. I mean, that's pretty much what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Now, other parts of the country, and I presume in Canada, 
sometimes people say they're barbecuing when they're cooking hot dogs on a grill, you know. And I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. I mean, it's a free country. Yours is too. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, people in Seattle put salmon on a cedar plank and cook it. Is that barbecue? Well, if they say it is, it's okay with me. But when I say barbecue, and when most people in the United States at least say barbecue, what they're talking about is some kind of meat, usually pork, sometimes beef, occasionally other things that have been cooked in this barbecue way and may or may not usually do have some kind of sauce on them. Texas, they don't use sauce or they don't always use sauce. Kansas City, St. Louis, they think it's all about the sauce. I mean, (laughs) North Carolina kind of splits the difference. Like Texans, we think it's about the meat. You know, it's barbecue before any sauce goes on it. But we do put a vinegar-based sauce on it. It's more as a seasoning than a sauce, though it doesn't sit on the, it penetrates, it doesn't sit on top of the meat. One of the things that I found really interesting from one of your books was that when we talk about sauces, there's a huge discrepancy between them. There's also a huge rivalry. And then there's ketchup. Can you just give us a little bit of explanation as to why uh, the word Heinz may not be as um, beloved in the South? Well, in parts of the South it is, that's the thing. Uh, I mentioned the conflict between eastern North Carolina and upland North Carolina. Part of what that is about is that in the foothills of the mountains in the Piedmont to the west of the east, they put uh, a little bit of ketchup in that vinegar sauce. Not, It's not thick and sweet and red like you get in Kansas City or find on your grocery store shelves. It's still a vinegar, vinegar and pepper sauce. But it's got some some ketchup in it that turns it red and makes it a little sweeter and people in the east are mightily offended by that and they argue about it (laughs) but uh, what they do in eastern North Carolina and parts of South Carolina is what everyone was doing 150 years ago Uh, they're, they're using a sauce that's ultimately derived from a sauce in the Caribbean and they put on it a, a lime juice and pepper sauce, just sprinkled it on to season it. When barbecuing and the word and the technique and all made it to the East Coast of the United States, lime juice is kind of hard to get hold of, and at some point somebody switched out, switched it out for vinegar. So a vinegar and pepper sauce with some salt and maybe a few little spices, a pinch of this, you know, just for mystique more than anything else. That's the basic what I call the or sauce, the mother sauce. And that's what everybody everywhere was using, uh, even Texas, you know, uh, uh, in 1850. 1876, the centennial of American independence, United States independence, in the Philadelphia exposition of that year, Mr. Hines introduced his bottled ketchup. I mean, there'd been ketchup around before, but it hadn't been marketed very successfully. And it kind of took off from there. And it wasn't long before people were putting ketchup in sauces, as they do in western North Carolina. They started doing that about the time of the First World War. And in some places, uh, it got out of hand, and you basically, instead of having vinegar sauce with a bit of ketchup in it, you had ketchup sauces with perhaps some vinegar in it. <laughs> and that's what you get in Kansas City and in Memphis, two great barbecue centers, but both uh, both of them sauce with with a thick, sweet red sauce. Do you think then that there's any money in maybe travel agencies holding a tour of the South 
barbecue. So you get to taste all the different types of barbecue that occur from all, from Texas all the way up to the the Mason Dixon. Yeah, I, I think that would be terrific, and I'd be I'd love to be an advisor and go along and talk about it. <laughs> so anybody wants to do it, get in touch with me. But you'd better hurry because, uh, as I say, uh, I think the intense localism of Southern barbecue may be giving way to to uh, creeping cosmopolitanism. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to learn all about how to stay safe when barbecuing. Or, as John Shelton Reed pointed out to me, when we do barbecue. Now, as much as we might like to think grilling is safe, there are risks, especially when you're caught up in the culture. And our guest teacher is a meat science and safety expert. His name is Jeff Saville, and he's a professor at Texas A&M University. And he, too, much like pretty much every Texan is a bit of a pit master. From your perspective, what is Texas barbecue? When people talk about Texas barbecue, they'll talk about the, the, the Texas trinity, which is brisket, spare ribs, and sausage. You know, almost any barbecue place you go to is going to have all three of those. But I tell everybody, in Texas, brisket's the king. And if you can't do brisket, you can't get credit enough for your excellence in pork spare ribs or in sausage. <laughs> uh, you're judged by the, the quality of your brisket. You're forgiven. If you got great brisket and average ribs, you're forgiven. If you got great ribs and average brisket, you're never forgiven. So brisket is the driver. This almost sounds like food safety when it comes to making sure your meats are properly cooked in order to be sure that you're not going to have any kind of infections. What I find interesting about food safety is most people understand that when it comes to the kitchen, but for some reason they don't seem to remember it for barbecuing. For barbecue, most barbecue is cooked sufficiently to destroy any of the, the normal kind of pathogens. So if we're thinking about salmonella and E. coli and, and things like this, because if we think about something like a brisket, it's going to be cooked to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit internally. And, you know, you're, going to, you're thinking about the amount of temperature to, to destroy those kinds of pathogens is much, much lower than that. So we never think about, unless we get some kind of a cross-contamination where you've had a cooked product that goes back onto a raw cutting board or raw surface or any of those type of things, most time those are taken care of okay with this adequate or even sufficient cooking. You're not cooking for food safety at that point. You're cooking to reach a tenderness level, especially in a tough cut like the brisket. Where we have more problems and potential problems is after you've had product cooked and now you're starting to figure out what to do with it if you have leftovers. And then that's where we can get some abuse where a product is is left out at room temperature for a long, long time, then you can get some spore formers that can start to creep up and cause problems. If we think about just kind of the the typical backyard enthusiast, you know, a lot of times a lot of the barbecuing is going on during the summertime. And so, you know, you really do have more problems if you don't have good uh, control of the product if you've got products that are left out because now that temperature is warm rather than cold. And so even having products before you get ready to put it on a smoker, leaving it out, those are uh, in the danger zone uh, temperature-wise. And so that's always a problem from that standpoint. Do you like the two thermometer rule? The idea that you need one thermometer for the airspace to make sure it's hot enough 
but also one thermometer for what you're cooking to make sure that it's done. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, I think I think any of that helps to you know kind of know what your oven, smoker, pet, whatever that may be. And because most of the time we're we're cooking in a in a low and slow environment. And forgive me for being on the south of the Canadian border and doing Fahrenheit. But, you know, we're normally thinking about a 250 to 300 Fahrenheit range in, in that. And so that that's good to know from that standpoint. And then having the thermometer uh, in the product to know where that is. And, and say most time you're not cooking from a food safety standpoint, trying to meet like you would uh, a steak or ground beef where you're trying to make sure that it the, you've met a... Um, an internal temperature that that is the minimum temperature you need for food safety, you're usually cooking well beyond that from a quality standpoint, but it still helps you to monitor where you are in the cooking process and things like that. And with the technology today, gosh, there's a lot of gadgets people can get today that you can monitor on your phone or your tablet through Bluetooth or wireless, and you know, there's all kinds of things that people have, have now set up that they can get everything going and just kind of check from the convenience of the house if they need to, just kind of make sure that the pit, the the smoker's running at the right temp, and then you've got the product and how it's, how it's uh, moving along in the cooking process. For the Canadians out there, that number is between 125 and 150 degrees Celsius. For people who are interested in learning more about food safety with barbecue, where would you recommend they go? I don't know that there's any one place that I've seen. I, I think a lot of the simple uh, type things that you will see from various government agencies a lot of times will have some uh, pretty simple uh, type things. Again, you know, the uh, like you said earlier, using a thermometer to make sure you've met internal temperatures, which for the most part we're doing that with most of these cuts anyway, but it still gives you a little bit of a, uh, of assurance that you, you've exceeded that met or exceeded the temperatures necessary to kill any of the pathogens, you know, all that separation of of raw and cooked, you know, making sure that you don't uh, have the same cutting boards, utensils, you clean up everything, like if you put on raw foods, that you cleaned up everything before you put any cooked foods back on those surfaces. I love those. You see a lot of commercial places, they'll actually have color-coded cutting boards and such. So they've got kind of the raw cutting boards are a certain color. The cooked cutting boards are a different color so that the two don't become one. And then uh, I think taking care of the leftovers is important, getting those refrigerated as soon as possible and getting them taken care of go a long, long way to prevent any kind of food safety kinds of problems. And I think if you're thinking about all the foods, and then just, again, making sure that any of the sides that you have that you're using are, you know, kept, especially those that are cold foods are kind of kept cold and then, you know, dished out and consumed and put away uh, initially so that they're not temperature abused. It still gets down to undercooking, cross-contamination, and temperature abuse are the three big problems we always have in food safety. And if we can take care of those three areas, you've got a lot of it taken care of. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has given you a new appreciation for the world of barbecue and how it is so much more than grilling meat. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. 
sometimes as a whole theme. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show him some sass.